Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep to see ourselves by Robert F. Young. This was first published and only published in Science Fiction Stories, issue number two, 1954. Uh, this was what they called a test issue. Um, I think what they mean by that is they're testing to see if there's any market for uh, this magazine and whether it'll crash or not. And um, I believe the answer is, uh, yeah, there's no market for this. <laughs> um, Fifty-four. Why do you think that is? Because yeah. looking at the table of contents, it's pretty great. It's right? got Algis Budras, Philip K. Dick, Mac Reynolds. I mean, these are people who went on to have lengthy and significant careers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is actually uh, a pretty good issue, in my view. Um, I would expect that the reason is distribution. <laughs> distribution is kind of like. Um, a problem. Uh, it's a problem that we don't normally think of, like in successive stories and stuff like that. But the way you get um, interest in science fiction growing in a place is by putting science fiction in that place. So I, I'm thinking about like all the uh, old pulp magazines that are put into uh, into cargo ships as ballast, and they're you know sent off to England because you know they've got all these magazines that would otherwise be pulped, ah, maybe they can get a little bit of mo- money for them. But they're not sent like um, because they know there's a market, but rather it's going at the cheapest rate. It's, you know, they're getting them for pennies on the uh, ton. And mm-hmm. and then they show up in England and suddenly, you know, they start making their own pulp magazines and their own science fiction magazines. And they're interested in the things that they're reading about. This works for comics. Um, you know, like example would be the philippines the philippines quasi u.s colony has massive amounts of filipino artists who got their skills by looking at these wonderful comic books and then saying let's do that and and then you know decades later those guys grow up and they become artists for the original industry that spawned their interest so it's hard to know all about these um, these distribution markets back then because it's not something uh, you know they talk about in the pages of the issues of the magazines. But I do know that the fortunes of of many a company uh, have fallen because of that. For example, during COVID, um, they stopped publishing mag uh, comic books. They just stopped for a couple months because they didn't know what to do and they couldn't distribute and it wasn't essential. And then they tentatively started up again. And since then, um, the single comics distributor, it's called Diamond, has now uh, gotten two other competitors. And there are the uh, DC and Marvel are distributing their own stuff instead of doing it through Diamond. And that can really change things. You know, um, now that you put us in mind of that, I actually, quite a while ago, published a lengthy 50 or 60 page article about um, the evolution of American science fiction. Mm-hmm. One of the key factors was something that happened in 1952 that exactly deals with distribution. 
Um, going into the decade of the 50s, there were something like 48 um, regular science fiction magazines, self-avowed science fiction magazines. At that period, there was really only one national distributor of magazines, mm-hmm. uh, the American News Company. The, the American News Company had sprung up during the Civil War uh, when people started to have an appetite for national news. So um, uh, the Atlantic would print in, uh, in, in Boston and they would have a certain print run and turn it over to the American News Company, which would subdivide it and send it off to their distribution points. They bought land near the railheads in key cities around the country. They'd send off the, those the subsets of the rail of the print run, and then from those those particular railhead warehouses, they would further subdivide them and distribute them in whatever region it was. In the 1950s, a Wall Street, and they became the only national distributor, the only national distributor. Um, so there were regional distributors, but not national ones. In the 50s, a Wall Street conglomerate recognized that with the growth of cities, the real estate that was owned by the American News Company could yield a greater return as real estate than it could as the location for the distribution of news. Yeah, and that, this sort of stuff doesn't so have they, anything to do with with, exactly. with a, a reader at the newsstand saying, oh, that looks like a good issue, right? Exactly. So they, they bought the company, and over the course of the 50s, they sold off those, those distribution points. And to this day, there is no longer a national distributor for all periodicals. But what happened is that and the development of soft back, of hard uh, paperback originals, mm-hmm. also starting about 52, changed the entire complexion of science fiction publishing. It sure did. So that no longer, by, by the time we get to 1960, there are only something like four national science fiction magazines because they are big enough to themselves subdivide their print run and send them off to the regional distributors. Therefore, what you're making me realize, Jesse, is that by launching a science fiction magazine in 1954, these people were actually swimming very hard against a very strong current. It's no wonder that they didn't succeed, uh, even though they have writers who did succeed by publishing in the residual journals. Yeah, and I, I, I want to point out that it did take off in a certain sense. It, it, it became a bi-monthly or six times a year uh, magazine for a few years after this. But one of the problems with, like, with magazines publishing is you sort of need to have a reliance on your customer wanting that issue in order for people to order it. So I'm thinking my own... Uh, visiting a bookstores, I would go to the bookstore, and every month I would get Science Fiction Monthly or Science Fiction Age, right? And it was a monthly magazine. If it if they because of uh, they think they're going to get better sales or because they can't get enough sales, they go bi monthly. That screws with my schedule. And anytime you make a change, it drops people out of the market. 
They're starting right. this mag. They started this magazine in '53. They did one test issue, then in '54 they did another test issue, and then they start going a little bit after that uh, with the you know six times a year model. But there was a lot of competition by this point. 1953 is like the high point of of uh, new science fiction magazines. 1955 is the peak, and. After that, it's a sort of a, a winnowing. We'd had science fiction magazines before, but the the highest point is right when they're just just you know dipping their toe in the water. But one issue is not going to make people come back to the newsstand if it they come back and it's not there the next month. So sad. I'll get especially, the other issue, especially if you can't distribute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there are a lot of factors that. Don't go into the quality of a magazine. That and there's good stuff in here. I've I've read the Turning Wheel by Philip K. Dick. It's a difficult story to get your uh, mind around, but it's a really good story. It's it's weird, sure. but it is really well written and very thoughtful. So why not why not come back for that magazine? Well, if they don't have it the next month, I can't buy it, can I? Right. So Dick, of course, is somebody readers do come back to. His name mm-hmm. appears on the cover of other magazines. Um, and so so does Mac Reynolds and so mm-hmm. does Algis Budras. But not so much Robert F. Young, although I think you've got some things you can tell us about this. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I've actually got um, a heck of a number of stories by him. Up, He had a huge career. Um, starting in 52, I believe, he goes right into the middle of the 80s. Um, he's born, I think, 1915 or so. And I have 18 stories by him on my PDF page, not because I love him so much, but rather just because he's super prolific. He wrote a lot of short stories, and they're in a lot of issues of a lot of magazines. Um, and he did sometimes get the cover. There's an issue of Fantastic um, October 1961, called uh, with a beautiful cover art called Deluge Two, and it's it's a, a spaceship, you know, a rocket, um, and a line of pairs of animals going into it. You know, Deluge Two. I get it. <laughs> um, it's a Noah story, um, and uh, yeah, he's not a, an author people put in their top tier. You know, I love Ray Bradbury, Heinlein's my guy, that sort of thing. But he was a steady writer, and he has an appeal to his stuff um, because he actually knows the market, but he also knows um, about science and the relationship of people to science. Is that what we – yep. If I'm correctly informed, though, um, he must have been the the penny-a-word kind of writer Mm -hmm. because – he never gave up his day job, which apparently was really a night job. Um, he was writing away, prolific, as you say, but his paycheck came from the Buffalo school system where he was a janitor. Oh, yeah. No, we, we, see, we see that a lot with um, most SF writers are not professionals. Um, one of my favorites, H. Beam Piper, was a, uh, a security guard at night on the trains. Um, I guess the train yards, and he would he would write up his stories while he was at work. <laughs> Double dipping. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of these stories, um, 
this one perhaps is short enough to read. Do you want us to just to do that? I, I think that's a great idea. It's it's got a lot going on, and um, yep. it's and easier to show us. It. Yep. Right. You've already primed us to think about what science means. So here we go. All right. Mm-hmm. To see ourselves. Transcript of John P. Willoughby's report of the first Terran-Martian meeting. Mare Erythraeum Sector, Mars, January 16, 1990. They are like us. That one amazing fact stands head and shoulders above all the other facts this expedition has amassed. Martians are not green. They are not multi-pedal. They are not Lilliputian. In short, they possess none of those outre characteristics accredited to them by the impulsive science fiction writers who thrived several decades ago. Martians are human We landed on the fringe of one of the geometric agricultural tracts, once referred to as canals by those same writers, that crisscrossed the habitable areas of Mars. The Martians arrived a short time later. When Captain Berg, Astrogator Wells, Pilot Rollins, and myself descended from the lock, they came toward us across the irrigated field that separated their copter-like vehicle from our ship. At first, we could not believe our eyes, for in spite of our better judgment and in spite of the Terran-like cities we had viewed during orbital descent, we had been expecting some teratological life form with far too many limbs and eyes and of a hue ranging from lurid purple to vivid green. And all we saw were three tall, bronzed humans. The foremost member of the welcoming party, for such it turned out to be, stepped forward with outstretched hand, and Captain Berg, capable officer that he is, arose to the occasion. Concealing his consternation, he accepted the Martian's hand, fulfilling the age-old, galaxy-wide perhaps, gesture of friendship. Wells and Rollins and I stood by open-mouthed, overwhelmed by the revelation that one of our traditional human mannerisms had the same social significance on Mars as it did on Terra. It was a moment none of us shall ever forget. The Martian said something in a rather sibilant tongue, and Captain Berg responded in English. As his words deserve to go down in history, I have carefully recorded them, and I hereby present them to civilization for the first time. We have conquered the abysmal wilderness of space and stand confident on the threshold of a new civilization. As spokesman for Terra, I salute you, men of Mars." And stepping back after the hand clasp, he did just that, drawing his body taut in the traditional manner and raising his right hand slowly to his right eyebrow, then cutting the salute smartly and whipping his hand back to his side. What followed is almost as remarkable as the astonishing resemblance of the fourth planet neighbors to ourselves, for the Martian reciprocated. He drew himself as taut as Captain Berg and delivered a salute that would have satisfied the most exacting of military men. The other two Martians seemed as incredulous as Wells, Rollins, and myself. They stood there with their mouths slightly open, their eyes wide. One of them had a pad and pencil in his hand, and after recovering from his surprise, he began to write quite furiously. I surmised then that he was the Martian equivalent of a reporter. He and I shall have much to discuss later. 
the historic moment over, the foremost Martian pointed toward the copter-like vehicle and indicated that we were to accompany him. I obtained permission from Captain Berg first to return to the ship and transmit this report. In a moment, I shall rejoin the others who already have boarded the Martian aircraft and are awaiting me. More later. Transcript of Slicer Sis's report of the first Martian Terran meeting. Most hallowed oh so 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 for the 63rd rotation of 10,000th orbit 21st cycle. I was delegated to accompany his most sacred highness, Thysis Sis, first administrator of our most hallowed city, and his sacred highness, Pthitus Sris, second administrator of our most hallowed city, on their mission of contact with the inhabitants of the first third planet ship entity. The information I have to report is incredible. They are like us. Such a statement is difficult to assimilate. We of most hallowed or so, 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 so have been overly influenced by the spate of speculative fiction that has invaded our literature during the past several orbits and have come to regard our third planet neighbors as being anything but human. But they are human. Second administrator Ptitsis Riss landed the tift some distance from the ship entity and we extended to the ground. Then we watched while the humans from third extended to the ground. At first, we could not accept our retinal images, for despite our determination to be objective, we had expected some teratological form of life with far too few limbs and eyes and of a color ranging from white to black. One of the more sensational of our speculative fiction writers has predicated a race of bipeds on three, and that, more than anything else, tended to pervert our better judgments. And all we saw were four tentacled, elongated humans. We extended rather slowly across the field, which separated us from the ship entity, fearing that a too pronounced rapidity of movement might frighten our visitors. They were not at all frightened, however. And when First Administrator Tsis extended forward, tentatively projecting his sanctified tentacle, one of the thirds, undoubtedly a First Administrator, extended himself forward, projecting his sanctified tentacle, and the two humans proceeded to entangle feelers in the cycle-old gesture of affiliation to a so-so-so-so. I believe that what First Administrator Thysis articulated is worth recording for future generations, and I am happy to be able to recall it verbatim. Welcome to four, men of three, most hallowed or so-so-so-so, greatest of the city entities, awaits you. The third articulated something in an odd fang, totally lacking in euphonious sibilance. He retracted his tentacle, then stiffening his body in an attitude of striking humility. He raised the same tentacle to his hood, held it there briefly, then retracted it again. I could sense that First Administrator Sis was as astonished as I. Not so much because of the third's uncanny familiarity with our religion, but because of his almost unbelievable devotion to a city entity he had never served, a devotion so profound that it would lead him to dedicate himself and his companions for consumption 
before any of them had reached the compulsory age limit. First Administrator Thysis recovered quickly, however, and authorized the dedication by a similar symbolical gesture. The dedication being thus consummated, nothing remained but for the two administrators to fulfill it. So the four threes were immediately transported to an available alimentary apartment, and most hallowed Ososososo began the leisurely process of assimilating them. I hope that I am not being sacrilegious and wishing that our first visitors from space had been less fanatically observant of their religious obligations. We have long been curious about our neighbors on three, and this would have been an excellent opportunity to study them. But perhaps more will come. I like it. I like it. Um, it's a meta science fiction story. Um, the the humans from Earth have uh, all these assumptions about what aliens will be like from their science fiction. The aliens from Mars, or the humans from Mars, um, have all these assumptions about what the Terrans will be like because of their speculative fiction writers. Um, that's fun stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> with regard to the title, uh, To See Ourselves, um, I uh, wrote above my copy, Science fiction is a tool, dot, 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 to see ourselves. And uh, that's pretty fun. But actually, um, it's, it's as I teach my students, you know, if you don't know why something happens, probably an illusion in a story. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, to see ourselves is a, is a line from a Robbie Burns poem uh, from 1786 entitled To a Louse. I will read the standard English translation. Um, it goes like this. Oh, would some power give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us? It would for many a blunder free us. It would, it would from many a blunder free us. And foolish notion, what airs in dress and gait would leave us. And even devotion. So there's a little bit of devotion in here. Um, the, we're told, oh, the subtitle for this po uh, very short poem is, to, uh, it goes, To a louse on seeing one on a lady's bonnet at church. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got, uh, two ways of viewing uh, this this little poem. One is from the louse's point of view. She's got lice. Ugh, sad story, right? Um, but she maybe doesn't know it, but he can see it. Maybe he's staring at the back of her head while he's in church, right? Um, but on the other hand, the way the lice see people as, you know, food <laughs> at home um there's a, a way of like seeing others through our eyes um but seeing through an alien's eyes as well so i think um robert f young's got something pretty clever here he's doing exactly what i'm thinking science fiction is for it's it's not to predict the future but rather to regard ourselves and our connections to our essential nature which is the copying animal the animal that copies other animals to make technologies to have conversations and then somehow a magical process uh, called time allows us to gain knowledge over time and make rocket ships and fax machines and kitchen sinks everything that 
happens in the world of humanity is strange because we have this ability to see ourselves. And science fiction is most interested in that rather than in just reporting on what other people's feelings are about and stuff like that. It's about the meta of our existence. And I think this story is interesting because I don't feel dissatisfied, even though I don't understand how this is even possible. How is it the humans see the aliens as as humans and the aliens see the aliens as humans as as in themselves? It's never explained in the story, is it? No. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that uh, just as one could see Star Wars, I mean, the movies, not uh, not the uh, military idea, um, we could see Star Wars not really as science fiction, but as a fairy tale set in space. Mm-hmm. Um, except for the fact that we are talking about Mars and Terra, and there's a rocket ship, um, I don't think that this really is science fiction. It certainly doesn't do anything that brings to mind a scientific viewpoint. Right. In fact, um, this seems to me to be a fairy tale in which we have an arbitrary rule, which is that two different cultures meeting each other will are able to, in fact, will unwittingly, not recognizing what they're doing, see each other as being like themselves. Mm -hmm. One of the things that science fiction does, and fantasy stories often do, um, is imagine something so that we can deal with it in advance and not be caught blindsided. Right. So I ask myself in this story, which is clearly not a science fiction story, and that's you know in the, certainly in the hard sense, or, the, or even in the epistemological sense, you know we're not going to get to Mars and have our looking at things uh, screw us over. This story calls to mind Mars is Heaven by Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. which was first published in 1948, in which, in fact, the Martians are able to project into the minds of the humans who land there that they mistake the Martians for being human so that they can kill them. Mm-hmm. So the, the mental powers of the Martians become something that destroys the, the humans here in fact the humans the the terrans and the martians are equivalent it's not something one does to the other it's something that they do automatically they see something else as being like them mm. and what happens of course at least for the ones that we think of as really human who are basically white Americans, um, given the names, and that bronzed is considered to be a nice description of somebody who's healthy looking. Um, what what this leads to this mutual failure to recognize that something is in fact different is a fatal consequence. Yes, and a funny one. <laughs> well, it is funny, but I think that 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 there is a real warning here. That science fiction is often monetary. Certainly, H.G. Wells is monetary. And I think this is monetary because it's 1954. We've just had the Korean War. We're not too far from World War II. Things are heating up all over the place. Uh, I don't know when in 54 this was published, but the French are really having a lot of trouble in Southeast Asia. Mm. There is a world of cultural conflict 
And what this story seems to suggest is that one of the reasons that we white men from the northern hemisphere are having a lot of trouble is that we keep thinking that the people that we are meeting are just like us. Mm. But they're not. And interestingly, given that they see us as like them and we see them as like us, when we put the two together, it's the Terrans who wind up dying. And it's the French who get kicked out mm. at Yen Ben Phu in 1954. It is, in fact, the ones who aren't white northern humans who keep, in fact, suffering. I think this is a prescient story and it's a monetary story. It is in science fiction, uses science fiction elements to give us a fantasy of culture clash and why we will not see it. Um, a book of around the same era is The Ugly American, which is entirely realistic mm. and deals with the mis the misapprehension of what the other culture is really like. Here, that's just metaphorized with pseudopods and tentacles. Mm-hmm. I, I see it the same way. There's um, uh, a I, I, want, I don't want to call it a myth, but a perception that Canadians are more polite than Americans. <laughs> this is usually a perception by Americans about Canadians. Um, and it, it, on the surface, seems true. You get into an elevator and you accidentally jostle a uh, Canadian. The Canadian apologizes. I'm sorry, says the Canadian. But if you didn't apologize, you don't understand. As the jostler, you are a monster. The Canadian won't say that, <laughs> but you are a monster. Similarly, um, if you uh, talk to people from the Iranian culture, Persian culture, um, you can have conversations that seem that are all about agreement. You posit something and the person won't disagree with you. It's not that they don't disagree. It's that you're saying things that are very impolite and they won't descend to your level of impoliteness. And I see that as happening in the story wonderfully, where um, after the human says, we have conquered the abysmal wilderness of space and stand confident on the threshold of a new civilization. As spokesman for Terra, I salute you, men of Mars. And then he, he takes his hand out of the Martian's hand and he salutes. <laughs> and when we see that from the alien point of view, from the Martian point of view, uh, the Martian says that this is so amazing. It says, he retracted his tentacle, then stiffening his body in an altitude of striking humility, he raised the same tentacle to his hood, held it there briefly, and retracted it again. And then the next paragraph, I could sense that first administrator, Thysysysys, was as, as astounded as I was, not so much because of the third's uncanny familiarity with our religion, but because of his almost unbelievable devotion to a city entity. He had never served a devotion so profound that it would lead him to dedicate himself and his companions for consumption. Little did you know, by saluting, you're saying, I am ready to be eaten. <laughs> Indeed. I think we should also mention, I would like to also mention that this is 
I don't know if it's obvious just listening to it or even reading it casually. This is a remarkably skillfully done story. Mm-hmm. The, the the notion of the mirror imaging mm-hmm. is worked out beautifully from the very first line where we have a Terran Martian meeting to the middle where we have a Martian Terran meeting. The handling of the tense structure so that we get the first as if it were past tense, but we could, of course, can never have the past tense from this fellow had he not gone away for a bit and then come back. Mm-hmm. So we get the time handled beautifully. We we get to see the story from two sides instead of one. So in a way, what Jung is doing by his own narrative technique is giving us an experience of a corrective of the problem that the story warns us against. Yeah. I think I think this is something that we want to talk about. We want to say, ah, how does this really apply to our world, to meeting people? And we keep thinking one thing, but we need to think something else. That is, don't stop by saying, oh yeah, I recognize that gesture, because there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.